0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 143. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today I'm also joined by Jacob Paulson. Howdy, everyone! There's a good old Wyoming howdy, apparently, from Jacob. Sure.
1: (laughs) Sure. So today you did accuse me of having gone to rodeos a lot as a kid because I'm from Wyoming.
0: And I think it's a shame that apparently you have not gone to many rode- rodeos.
1: <laughs> Maybe a shame or not, that was
0: unfair stereotyping. <laughs> Profiling. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect I've probably then based on what you told me I've probably been to more rodeos than you've been to rodeos.
1: Oh it wouldn't be hard. Yeah.
0: Two or and, three. And that's me. a shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Anyway, hey folks, how you doing today? Uh today's episode is our Monday weekly episode covering everything news in the firearms and concealed carry industry. All kinds of interesting stories here today. We've got some legislative updates or some at least some court ruling updates. I think one of these is, well, several of these are, are interesting, but this one in particular really caught my eye, talking about whether there is a right to carry or not. We'll see. We'll, we'll dive into that story here in a moment. Um, also, are smart guns a good idea? I think we asked, addressed that in our second episode of the Can Still Carry podcast and said No. And here's an even an additional reason as to why. And you'll want to stay stay tuned to hear what that reason is as far as there's a little bit of a problem with some smart guns, apparently. And finally, we've got a whole host of Justified News stories you're not going to want to miss. Stories from Texas, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Georgia, all over the place. Good stuff coming right up. But first, today's episode is brought to you by the Brave Response Holster. Are you looking for the most versatile, comfortable, most concealable holster on the market? Look no further than the Brave Response holster. Compatible with nearly any semi-automatic handgun and many types of revolvers. And it doesn't matter what you wear for pants. Or even if you wear pants at all. <laughs> Longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize this sponsor and this sponsor message. <laughs> you laugh every time you say it, too. <laughs> I can't help not laughing. <laughs> That's the point, though. It's a great holster, and uh, you can wear it with pretty much anything. So check out the Brave Response holster today at concealedcarry.com forward slash brave response. That is B-R-A-V-E-R-E-S-P-O-N-S-E. Concealedcarry.com forward slash brave response. And so now let's get into our usual Monday training tip. And today's training tip is one-handed slide racking. We were doing quite a bit of this the other day, weren't we, Jacob?
1: Yeah, yeah. I got, got a fair share of hours on this one. So, yeah, the yeah. short of it is that among all firearm shooting skills, one-handed manipulation or shooting of a gun is is, is a very broad but very important uh, firearm skill to have. And within that one-handed manipulation arena, one thing you might have to do is clear malfunction or reload a gun or do other things that require racking a slide.
0: Indeed. Uh here's the deal the deal with one-handed racking. You can do a lot of things with a handgun with one hand. You can shoot it pretty easily. I can even accomplish reloading a magazine fairly easily one-handed. Racking is not hard either, but it's kind of one of those things where you've got to try it a few times to be you know I think to get a hang of it and figure out you know what works best for you or what works best in certain certain situations. For instance, if you are standing and fighting and one of your hands goes down or one of your hands is occupied and, and you need to do a malfunction drill, some sort of immediate action drill, and you've got to rack the slide. I mean, virtually every IAD I or immediate action drill involves racking the slide of some sort. Well, how would you do that? If you've got a good hard-edged surface or tabletop, it's pretty simple. But a lot of times we are not shooting, uh, having a shootout in a gunfight with a, a table nearby. Uh, so, a couple of things you might look at and try is hooking the rear sight on the edge of your holster, particularly if it is a Kydex holster or, or some other uh, polymer or, or, you know, like a good solid holster. You probably will have an edge you can catch the rear sights on. Uh, you could try a belt or belt buckle. You can try hooking it on the heel of your shoe. Um although that's really tricky if you're standing, so that's probably more applicable if you're kneeling uh or bent down. So, a couple, you know, a lot of different ways you might try it, but I encourage you to get out there and practice. And of course, by get out there, you could just do this right in the comfort of your own, own home as long as you are exercising proper safety, uh doing some dry fire practice at home. Mm-hmm. But uh I would encourage you to try it.
1: Yeah, that's a great tip. Do this at home first, dry, empty, do it slow, do it clear. And,
0: uh, you yeah, take your time. Yeah, a couple things, too, just to, before I let it go. Uh, if you do not have a rear sight that has a pretty good flat-facing surface on the front edge of that sight, uh, meaning sometimes we see sights that have sort of a slope or ramped appearance, appearance um, those ones make it a lot more difficult to do this. It's, it's really key, I think, having that nice flat face on the front of a rear sight that allows you to hook it or catch it on something and rack it. And the second thing is a lot of people don't realize this, but if you use enough pressure and force on a pant leg or something, you can generally still rack uh, a, a gun. So without necessarily hooking it on something. So just a couple of things there to consider and be aware of. Today's episode is also brought to you by the way, by VTAC or Viking Tactics, as well as by Live Fire Drill Cards. And so with that, let's get into our first story. And this one's titled, (laughs) Houston Wingstop Employee Saves the Day with His Gun. I think it's a little bit of a misleading title, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, I think the journalist should be,
1: uh, well, she's in trouble. Maybe I should send her a note and tell her in the future when she's writing stuff about guns, she can contact me first and I'll help her with her headlines.
0: Yeah, so this story is out of Houston, Texas. A suspected robber was shot in uh in Third Ward. So it's just a section of the town there or city. Houston's a big old big old city. This happened last Tuesday and this was a Wingstop employee that shot the suspected robber. So what happened was a masked man entered the Wingstop restaurant just after 11 p.m. and ordered everyone to the floor. A customer, Corey Martin, told police that he was sitting down eating when the man came in wearing a mask and dressed in all black. Witnesses told investigators that the man kept reaching into his waistband as if he had a, w- a weapon. He demanded money from the register, and an employee handed over $350. When Colbert, the the this is the masked man, his his full name, Benjamin Maurice Colbert, uh, when he ran away, the employee, and it seems to imply this is the same employee that handed the money, because it doesn't re- reference any other employee. It says an employee handed money, and then the employee, who had a gun, chased after Colbert and shot him. Investigators said the two exchanged gunfire. Uh, occupants of the restaurant said it was loud. A lot of shots were fired. It was estimated about 10 shots were, were heard and police later found colbert a few blocks away at a bus stop on uh with a g- single gunshot wound to his leg
1: did you see the video Riley?
0: yeah Stylen's it's video? Uh, it's yes tell, it's not, tell there's us about not there's not much
1: yeah there's not i mean what you what what what's clear from the video is that the robber gets the cash and runs out of the gun store and then the employee chases after him and catches up with him you know quite a ways past the front door uh, I mean, it was a very deliberate thing to chase after this robber and then fire shots. It's it's not what you can tell from the video is it's not like it was a split moment thing like, oh, he might still be going to hurt somebody here and toward the front of the store. So I'll shoot him as he's headed toward the doorway. No, no, no. The robber cleared the doorway, went around the back of the building. I mean, it was quite a distance and the employee was chasing and giving chase. So it was, it was was it was not an area that I would consider gray or confusing. It was very vigilante-like.
0: Yeah, and that was exactly my my thinking as I read this story, and kind of why I decided to highlight it as the lead story for today, because it's a perfect example of a concealed carrier making a, a critical error, a big mistake. It frankly would not surprise me at all to see charges filed in a case like this. Uh, it's really going to depend on on how f- solid of a case the prosecutor feels like they have. But I'm reminded, Jacob, of uh, this last Thursday night we had for our Guardian Nation Live event we had uh, Andrew Branca on the Guardian Nation Live broadcast and he kind of talked about how there's all these stories featured you know we see him in American Rifleman the NRA features these self-defense stories and he sees them all the time where he's like oh boy you know we're kind of crossing a line there and and this is definitely one of those situations too where it's like you know on one hand people would read this and go ah good good for him you know good for him not letting that guy get away uh you know hey this was an armed robber uh you know they don't people don't see a problem with what this man did with the employee of Wingstop. Uh, but the problem is is as far as i how i read it he broke the law he there was no need for him to go after this guy and fire at him uh, there was no longer any threat to life. The th- robbery was done and over with. So then, that's a problem. I think you would agree, Jacob. Yeah,
1: that, that's a huge problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, go read episode one and, and under you know, read. Uh, go listen to episode one and just remind yourself that it, b- both ethically and legally, our objective is to defend life, not to stop the escape of criminals.
0: Right, or or to take justice into our own own hands, you know, it's, it's not, it's nothing to do with recovering that money that was just handed over. Uh, That is, that is a minute issue compared to, you know, the issue of life And I'm sorry, you know, taking a man's life over 350 bucks is not worth it. Now, if that man had pulled out a gun and it was in your face uh, or he threatened you, you know, in some other fashion while he was in the act of committing that crime, that robbery, that's a whole different situation. But to go after him, to take after him, draw your weapon and fire, that's a problem. So, folks, we share these types of stories with you because we want to educate you, we want to help you. You cannot you can you you, sh- you should not and i i i can't say you cannot because you can please do not follow the example of this man please make proper prudent justified legal decisions in situations such as these and the correct decision would be to let that man go
1: yeah yeah call 911 you know defend the pe- defend the people in the building if necessary but <laughs> just yeah. don't
0: do this Next up story from vice vicecom uh, this is uh, this is an interesting story and well, this I is a repub from uh, the trace I think true true yeah it was it, it states that here that this article is published in partnership with the trace neither one of these publications I am a fan of uh, there's quite a bit of media on these uh, different pages or, or sites that are I mean there, there's all kinds of anti-gun propaganda that I've come across. This story would come across as being pretty, I guess, even-handed or level-headed or I don't know fair, fair. I suppose that would that's the intent that it comes across that way. I don't necessarily see any problem with the way this is reported. They're essentially writing about a study that was done at Stanford that was concluded uh, about a month ago, and, or at least it was it was released. The info from that study was released about a month ago. It was back in June. And this study was looking at whether right to carry states. So, in other words, and that's the word, the term they used. uh, Another, you know, another way we would describe it would be shall issue states. And specifically, they looked at 33 states that are shall issue, and they looked at data since the late 1970s. Data, you know, various crime data, uh, murder rates violent crime rates, nonviolent crime rates, they looking at demographics, uh, uh, you know, incomes and, you know, all these different factors and varieties of, of information to try to determine from from this whether states with shall issue laws or right to carry, in other words, states where more people carry concealed and carry a gun for self-defense, whether those states actually saw a decrease in crime rates. And so from there I'm going to turn it over to you, Jacob, because uh, you know, I don't want to be the only one talking on this. This is a pretty <laughs> it's a it's first of all, it's a fairly lengthy article. There's quite a bit of detail in it. I mean I suspect yeah. the study that was released is is pretty is pretty detailed. I haven't seen it personally yet, but I, I hope to maybe get my hands on it. Cause this is kind of cutting at the, the core of the issue. I mean, even we we talk all the time about how we, I mean, we are concealed carry advocates. We are concealed com because we believe society is safer because people have their guns for self-defense and they are carrying concealed lawfully and legally and are able to defend themselves. And that the one thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I mean, we've all heard that. We say it, we believe in it, I think, but this study maybe throws a wrench into that a little bit. So, let I mean, yeah, I realize so this is a, this is a sensitive issue for our audience and it's a sensitive issue for us as well. But Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we've got to hit it head on.
1: Yeah, so I'd like to, we should really have John Locke come on our podcast and respond to it would be like the best thing we could do um, because they're really attacking his research over, you know, many, many years. My first thought is the headline in this article is bullcrap. The headline is the good guy with the gun theory debunked. And they try and make the argument that this study that was released debunks the idea that a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. But the study actually has nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns. Nothing. Zero. Absolutely nothing whatsoever. What this study has to do with is in a place where states, you know, have shall issue laws for permits, is violent crime going down or is violent crime going up and what types of violent crime? That is the extent of this study, which has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not good guys stop bad guys with guns nothing whatsoever. So the whole premise on which this article is written really pisses me off because it's not relevant. In fact, the argument could be made that in a place with higher violent crime, it's more likely that good guys with guns are stopping bad guys with guns because there are more bad guys with guns. So I find it really frustrating that we would try and take this study and use it as a premise to quote unquote debunk The good guy with a gun theory. It's not even relevant. The only way, and and this has come up before. Last time I I, I got on this soapbox was when the Daily Show with Jon Stewart tried to debunk the, the good guy theory. And so let me make this clear. The only way and for all you anti-gunner researchers who actually might listen to this, which is zero, none of them will listen, the only way you could possibly debunk the theory is if you can create a database of incidents in which a bad guy with a gun was successful at doing something naughty and a good guy with a gun was available and there, potentially able to stop the bad guy and failed. Mm. Come up with that data and, and, and we'll have a chat.
0: Well, and... That's a dang near impossible thing, probably, to... the data doesn't exist. ...aggregate. But, uh, (laughs) so I appreciate your, your, I mean, you're correct in that this study has nothing to do with actually measuring whether uh, a good guy is able to stop a bad guy or not. Uh, I think what they're getting at, what they point out is that looking at crime rates and statistics over the last... uh, almost 40 years, and looking in, you know, states and jurisdictions, uh, let's use California and New York as an example, where, uh, you know, uh, gun control has increased in those states. And in other states, particularly shall issue states, a lot of times gun control has eased up, or at least we've introduced the concept or idea of concealed carry and a concealed carry permit. And essentially what they're suggesting is we have seen as a nation for the last 40 or 50 years, a fairly, you know, steady decline in, in crime, overall crime rates. Right. And by that it's important that we understand that crime rates would refer to how many crimes per say hundred thousand people. Right. And so Yes, we recognize that our country has increased its population overall, but the, the actual numbers of crimes committed has also increased. But as a relationship to the population, that rate has decreased for most most places, most areas of the country. And what they found in this study supposedly is that crime rate had decreased And actually, I need to go back and and let's see, where was that at? It was was specific to, was it violent crime? Violent Uh,
1: crime, with the exception of murder.
0: Correct. Um, Yes. So... Here it is. This is what I was looking for. Examining statistics from the U.S. Census Bureau and the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Data, the authors estimate, and this is the authors of this study that was done by Stanford, the authors estimate that states with stricter concealed carry laws saw crime fall. So they are just talking about generic crime. Fall by 42% from 1977 to 2014. That drop is more than four times greater than the 9% decrease seen in right to carry or shall issue states. And so that's one of their big points is that it's not that in shall issue states that crime hasn't decreased. It has decreased in most states. It's that they're arguing that crime has decreased at a lesser rate than stricter states. And so I ask you, Jacob, I mean, do you believe this?
1: Well, let me ask you what I think is a more important question. Does it matter if you believe it? In other words, let's assume it's true. Let's let's okay. just let's just assume it's true. Does that change how you feel about the right to self defense with the firearm?
0: It does not change how I feel. I know that. Yeah, me,
1: me neither. So that'd be the first thing that I would throw out there is let's let's assume, just for kicks and giggles that this Stanford study from the Stanford Law School and all the data they ran uh, is true. Let's just assume that it's 100% accurate that the the impact of a state having a shall-issue law that allows people to get concealed carry permits by doing nothing more than passing a background check meeting whatever training requirements – that that the impact of that legislation has led that state to not have a decrease in violent crime as quickly or as significantly as it would have had should had it kept you know more of a may issue approach to concealed carry permitting. If that's true, does that change how you feel? And and this is important, frankly, I think for our, for for you, the listener of this podcast, because I, it doesn't change how I feel either, not even a little bit. Because at the end of the day, the, the inference here, by the way, is not that concealed carry permit holders are committing crimes. And, and I, I shouldn't say that because in, in the article, they do sort of infer that a little bit, but they're careful. And this, the researchers are careful too, because they actually point at other things. They say, for example, that it could be an impact that criminals, because they suspect that good citizens have guns, criminals are more likely to seek out having guns. That's an interesting, you know, potential thing that they say could be driving the rates. But they're careful to not specify that the good guys with the guns are the ones committing the, the, all these violent crimes because they know better. Because you know, there's plenty of research that would suggest that, you know, cops are more likely to commit violent crimes than people with concealed carry permits. So, they, they don't infer that it's the good guys with the guns c- committing the crimes. What they're inferring is that it's other issues, that they're, you know, other stuff. And maybe, maybe one of those things is that criminals are more likely to arm themselves when they think citizens are armed. It's a bit of a stretch.
0: And, yeah. and so to they, me, they called the, it an arms race, I believe.
1: Yeah, the arms race between the criminals and the good guys. So, so to me, uh, there's two things I take out of this. One is, okay, I, if that's true, so what? Like that doesn't change my feeling at all because it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that bad guys have guns uh, or the bad guys have knives, frankly, whatever bad guys have potential to cause harm and therefore I have a right constitutionally and in my opinion, ethically from my creator to defend myself and my family. So it doesn't change anything for me. The second thing I take from this is why? Like if your data is true, if you really, truly, and, and by the way, the, it's pretty impressive if you read this article, all the, the detail about the analysis and how it was done and how they tried to isolate this variable, right, to carry legislation from all the other potential variables that increase or decrease uh, crime rates. It, it sounds pretty impressive. Like, it's definitely well written in that regard. And, and And so, my thought would be, well, if you're really able to do this, if you're really able to isolate... This kind of data and say, and point at this one thing and say, this one thing is responsible for a lack of violent crime decrease relative to other states that don't have this one thing, then you should be able to answer the question, why? And they can't answer the question, why? Because Unfortunately, all these wonderful, good, honest, law-abiding citizens that are getting armed are not the ones committing the crimes. So th- their little reach of the arms race between the good guys and the bad guys is the only real attempt in this entire research study from what I've read so far, right, to answer the question, why? And it's a bit of a reach. And even if it's true, all the more reason I want to be armed. Mm. I'm not saying it's it's a good thing. I'm just saying it is what it is.
0: Right. You know, I'm still pretty skeptical of this study because, I mean, they, they, like I said, they make a point to explain how a lot of the research was done and all the very different variables they looked at, trying to, like you said, isolate it down to only the impact, supposedly, that either being more permissive about concealed carry or less permissive about concealed carry and the effect that that had on crime rates. And I, I still, like, it, there's so many variables. I mean, just look at Metro Denver, which is our, the mo- you know, the n- most near uh, metropolitan, you know, big city that is near you and I, Jacob. And look at all of the different people in Denver, all the different neighborhoods within Denver, all the different cultures, uh, you know. All the different crimes that are committed there. I mean, like there, there's so many. You know, the the economics, the demographics. There are so many factors and things that change and influence change within the city. I, I just I don't know that I can buy that you can really isolate it down to this one thing and attribute that to crime rates, either increasing or decreasing or or, or decreasing at a lesser rate. I'm thinking too about. Let's let's talk about Texas, for instance, or Florida, two states that are mentioned in this article, uh, that are you know big time concealed carry states. Uh, Florida, especially Florida, has been you know one. Of, it's been kind of a a it, it, what's what's the word I'm looking for? I mean that's kind of where a lot of concealed carry really got really started and kicked off, uh, and it contains some very large metropolitan areas. You know you got Miami and you got t- Tampa and other other large cities there. And I suspect that Florida, just like Texas, just like Colorado, just like a lot of states, that metropolitan areas are, by and large, overwhelmingly responsible for the greater greater portion of crime uh, statistics within those states. And the thing we've seen since 1977 is that metro areas, big cities, have... Gotten a lot bigger than they were 40 years ago, and no matter what you do, and my my opinion is like the more people you cram into a small area, you're always going to have greater challenges as it relates to crime and crime fighting. And so I I don't know how or if they were able to take any of that into account. But uh, but you're right. I mean, at, at the core of this issue, Jacob, you said this does not change your opinion about the right to self-defense and that you personally feel like you should be armed and, and able to defend yourself. And I'm of the same opinion. Uh, yeah, I'll,
1: I'll give you two more thoughts that I think may be relevant. And I think people should go read this, by the way, because I, I'm a strong believer that all of us should have our paradigms and our perceptions challenged as often as possible. So I... I love reading this kind of stuff and asking myself, am I wrong? Am, you know, where, what am I missing? Because that's healthy. It's not healthy to just say, yeah, Bloomberg's people probably paid for this. Screw it. Move on. Like that's not actually very useful to any of us. So it's okay to have your beliefs challenged. Like there's nothing wrong with that. So go read this. But but here be a couple thoughts. Did you see anything at all in any of the data that you that we've read so far, rightly? that suggested that they isolated violent crime committed with a gun? Or is it all violent crime?
0: I didn't see that. Uh, No, I did not see that specifically. Me neither. Maybe we're wrong. I suspect that they would try to isolate it to gun-related crime, but... That's not what it says. It says that violent
1: crime did not decrease as fast as others. And it does mention a couple of times non-fatal violent crime versus fatal violent crime, but there's never any distinction made between violent crime with a gun and violent crime without a gun. So is it also possible that there's some variable that has to do with citizens getting armed that causes criminals to commit more violent crime with or without guns potentially, but is that a direct causation? You know, I mean, there's, there's just so many issues there that, that I I find concerning or debatable. But but at the end of the day, like you said, it's like, I, I don't really care one way or the other. It doesn't, if anything, it only reasserts my belief that we all have the right to self-defense and we really should move forward and do that as best we can.
0: Yeah, but keep in mind that this is an article written by some journalist on Vice or The Trace that they may not have gotten you know the semantics you know specific enough as it relates to that but it's a fair point. So my thinking though is I as I look at this is that every week on this podcast we share stories where citizens save lives because they were armed and they were capable and able to defend themselves and we're going to share some stories in, in, you know later on in the program today that illustrate this point. And you know what? I, I still have to look at all those instances. I mean, every week we, we see we, – we have to pare down all of the stories that are out there where someone defends their life or the life of another or of their families with a gun. And we have to pare these down to just a handful of stories each week. It tells me that every week there are dozens of, and dozens of examples where Americans are able to defend themselves successfully, I might add, with a gun. That otherwise may not have been able to do so. And I can't imagine the thought of those dozens, you know, and ultimately over time, hundreds or thousands of people that would be gone because they did not have the gun as an option, as a viable defensive option. And so that's where I stand. And that's why we do what we do why we're passionate about this idea of concealed carry because it saves lives. It truly does. So I I can't do anything about some other you know gangbanger that lives a couple of blocks away. I don't. I hope there's not any within a couple of blocks. I can't do anything about that guy, right? I can't. I can't. You know, as a, as an individual, I cannot influence what that guy decides to do and the crimes he decides to commit. I can choose to arm myself, defend myself, prepare myself you know, and be ready for what somebody else might do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We, we're all responsible for ourselves. Right. Right. And so, yeah, there you have it. Interesting article. I think folks, you're right, you're right, Jacob. They, They should go read it. Uh, and we should at least be aware of these, these types of things. And I suspect that it's, you know, with these types of articles and with these types of studies too, there, there's always a certain picture that is painted. And, I promise you, there is an other side to it, and it would be interesting to hear what John Lott has to say, and uh, I hope that we can get in touch with him and maybe get him lined up to have him on the podcast and specifically talk about uh, this issue, this Stanford study, because I think this is an interesting one. It's probably the best uh, uh, ammunition, <laughs> if I might use the term, that the anti-gunners have ever been able to get as far as like a study that, you know, that they can really, you know, it seems very, very legit. So we'll see. Turning now to a DC or Washington DC federal court that just ruled this past week that carrying guns in public is a quote unquote core second amendment, right? This is fascinating because I mean, number one, it comes out of Washington DC, uh, and, and two, I mean, it just seems so often we see court cases on the federal level that don't necessarily go, you know, they don't go this way a lot of times. Um, and actually, recently, I think there was one federal court that kind of ruled the opposite of this. And now this court is saying, no, carrying, public carrying of firearms is a core Second Amendment right. And so this kind of sets it up. The Supreme Court has been hesitant to take up cases like this, to take up the issue of public carrying of firearms. Um, now we've got two federal courts that are basically saying two different things about the issue. Be curious to see if the if the Supreme Court decides to weigh on the matter finally. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we've got, you know, the right, I, I hope the right justices in place as far as... You know, if this were to go to the Supreme Court, I'd like to think that it would, you know, go in our favor as far as gun rights are concerned. But anyway, to get into some of the nitty-gritty, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit held in a two-to-one decision that public carrying of firearms is a core Second Amendment right, and that the district's regulations amounted to a "quote-unquote" total ban on exercising that right. The ruling breaks with several federal appeals courts that upheld similar regulations in other States. This is quoting from DC circuit judge Thomas Griffith, who wrote the majority opinion. He said for that long struggle against gun violence, you might see in today's decision, a defeat. You might see the opposite to say, whether it is one or the other is beyond our Ken here. We are bound to leave the district as much space to regulate as the constitution allows but no more suggesting that he sees that it is a core second amendment right for public carrying of firearms and that we've got to allow jurisdictions and states and cities to regulate as the constitution allows, which so in other words, the constitution says public carrying of firearms is permissible, that it is a fundamental right and that is the that is the issue here. Uh, there are, like I said, other courts that have disagreed with that issue. So, now, the, if we go back to the Heller decision, by the way, Jacob, that was the other big kind of landmark decision. Yeah, and I was about to bring that up. Oh, <laughs> I'm stealing your thunder, am I? Well, Maybe. It, And it applied to D.C., right? But Well, it, it did. And, I mean, as far as, like, that's where it originated, right? But, but it's a U.S. Supreme Court its decision. The scope was limited compared to what this issue is.
1: Yeah, you're right. The Heller decision said that the U.S. citizen has the right to carry a gun for self-defense, but it had nothing to do whatsoever with concealed carry. And that's where, frankly, a lot of people in our community get confused. And I can't say I blame them. Like, you know, Riley and I feel very strongly jointly that, yeah, the Second Amendment does or should at least cover the right of the citizen to carry a concealed gun. Like we. We agree with you, like, I'm not trying to piss anyone off, but the U.S. Supreme Court and the actual laws of the law, as written in the Bill of Rights, do not say that so far. The U.S. Supreme Court has only sustained in the Heller decision that we have the right to have a gun or to carry a gun or to have it with us for the purpose of self-defense, but it does not specify concealed carry. And so, up to this point, you've had these other courts, and specifically, you know, you mentioned the decision in uh, whatever the California federal court is, District 11 or something, 10, I don't know, right. District 10, I think. The District 10 court in Calif- you know, that covers California ruled that the San Diego pol- county policy of good cause was perfectly um, constitutional. Because it it essentially said the Heller decision had nothing to do with someone's right to obtain a concealed carry permit. Um, That was above and beyond the Heller decision. Therefore, it's within the right of San Diego County to restrict people from getting permits unless they show good cause as defined by the local jurisdiction. Now, this DC uh, Federal Appeals Court, I can't remember what number it is. I need like a map with all the district courts. Anyway, um, this, this court's saying the opposite. It's saying, no, 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 wait if if we say that people have the right to have a gun for self defense then inherently they should be allowed to have it on them concealed and so this this you know good cause argument is unconstitutional and so yeah i, I love it i'm frankly pumped because it's like anyone who wants to run this up to, up the chain has much better ammunition to get the supreme court to hear it now because you have two federal district appeals courts who disagree and that creates for sort of a situation where the Supreme Court maybe has, is, has their hand forced to, to ruling on this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a pretty succinct uh, explanation that you just provided, Jacob. So I, I think I'm inclined to just leave it at that for now. I, this is exciting to see. I mean, it's ex- always exciting to me to see federal courts and federal judges get it right. And so we'll just see where it goes from here. I, you know, I don't know if this is going to make it to the Supreme Court or not, if they're going to just say, no, nah, we're not going to rule on that at this time. Um, there is still an option for the District of, of Columbia's attorneys. So those that were uh, kind of on the other side of this decision, uh, they, they, they could still ask for the full sitting of the, of the district court to rule in on this decision because you know there's more than three there was three justices that ruled on this particular case but i can't remember exactly how many are on a full sitting of a district court but they could ask for that and if they get all those just you know all those judges to come in and hear the case and rule on it it could go back the other way so you know that's an option and that could happen. And then it might not ever get to the Supreme court or they may just appeal to the Supreme court. And maybe we see a case where the Supreme court uh, looks at whether it is a so called right. Uh, and I do believe it is right, you know, but I'm, I'm just kind of quoting as, as it would uh, appear in a uh, article, if you will, you know, the, the, as far as the public carrying of firearms. And and that's a big one. Uh, this could be uh This could be a life-changing decision if it were ever to be ruled on from the Supreme Court. Um, All right, so let's get on now to another court kind of related story. And this is out of Charleston, West Virginia, where West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey joined by four other states, that would be Indiana, Michigan, Texas, and Utah. And they are asking this so the Supreme Court to overturn an appeals court ruling, they say infringes on gun rights. In a brief Tuesday, and this is reported on uh, usnews.com. Uh, on, in a brief Tuesday, they argue that the fourth us District or excuse me the fourth u.s Circuit Court majority erred in concluding police can frisk someone they believe has a weapon. Morrissey, joined by these four other attorneys general, said innocent gun owners have the right to carry weapons without the fear of being unreasonably searched. They argue that existing case law requires police determine someone is dangerous as well as armed. Otherwise, people will have to choose between their right to bear arms and freedom from unreasonable searches. So, let me see if I can communicate this in a way that, that is simple and makes sense. We have a law here in Colorado where anytime you are interacting with law enforcement, let's say I get pulled over by an officer. And in the course of my interaction with him, it comes out that perhaps I have a, a weapon in the, in the vehicle. Now, it, it's likely that it, that could come up because my own personal practice is that as part of my procedures in dealing with the officer is that I would hand over to him at some point uh, voluntarily, I might add, my driver's license, my registration, my insurance, together with my concealed carry permit or license to communicate to him that, by the way, I I am carrying concealed, I am armed, all right? And he could take from that, that, oh, this person is armed. He might ask a follow-up question. He might say, do you have a weapon in the vehicle? Yes, I do, sir. Where is it? I, I might be inclined to tell him, right? He has the right per statute in the state of Colorado to command <laughs> he could ask, he probably would ask, but he, you know essentially to tell me that he is going to disarm me, and that I would have to step out of the vehicle and he would he would pr- proceed with you know doing a, a, a brief search and disarming me pursuant to completing that uh, traffic stop. And so at issue here is these attorneys general are suggesting that that is an unreasonable search. That he should have to also determine that I am, you know, that he he would essentially have to have a reasonable suspicion that I am also dangerous. Not just because I'm armed before he could do something like that. What's your take on this, Jacob?
1: I I agree. I think that... What the what the legislation essentially implies is that if you have a gun, you're dangerous. And I disagree. I don't I don't think of myself as do you think I'm dangerous, Riley? I don't think I'm dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm certainly not dangerous in an illegal way, I right. don't think. Right. So I appreciate that my constitutional rights should not be infringed simply because I'm exercising my right to carry concealed. Like, th- th- there's always drama when two constitutional rights seem to collide, right? And this this is one of those collisions. And the arguments here, to me, the core of it is, you know, inherently because someone has a gun, are you calling them dangerous? Because we shouldn't. Because the Constitution allows that they have that gun.
0: Right. So, the, this is a tricky one, I think. You know, because... We do have a couple issues here, and it, it goes beyond just, it's not just Fourth Amendment and Second Amendment at odds with each other. And actually, by the way, I should say they're not necessarily even at odds, because what the Fourth Amendment is basically saying is that, that I have a right, that I, sh- you know, I shouldn't have to be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures, right? And I have a right to be armed. But at issue is officer safety. And... I I feel kind of in an interesting position because now while I don't necessarily do uh you know traffic stops I'm I'm not a traffic cop or anything like that. Uh have I have I been involved in some of that? Yes. Uh have I done that? Yes. But that's not what I primarily am involved with in my duties. Um but at the same time I'm very much aware and I'm familiar with the the thoughts and feelings of officers that are out there on the streets every day doing traffic stops. It is a thankless job. It's a difficult job. It's a very dangerous job. And so a lot of these statutes are written so that um, officers can, in theory, protect themselves. And I'm inclined to agree with you, Jacob. I really am, as far as I don't think that just because someone is armed necessarily... Uh, makes you know that it automatically makes them dangerous and so I kind of have to I I have to agree at the same time I'm kind of feeling for you know my officer friends and buddies out there that uh, I, I don't see it as being an issue personally but I do see this as being kind of the argument at hand and the reason I don't see it being an issue is because if you handle traffic stops in the, in the manner I described, as far as, like, I hand in my driver's license and I hand in my permit, what that permit does, and I think most cops, are they, they, would, they would view this a lot the same way. They go, huh, okay, this person's handing me their permit. Well, they obviously want me to know that they have a permit, so they're probably telling me that they have a gun or that they're carrying a gun concealed. And the other thing that that permit tells them is that this person's been background checked. Fairly thoroughly, much more thorough. I mean, you don't get a background check to get a driver's license. Uh, and in many states, most states, you get a FBI background check before you get that permit. And that's a fairly thorough background check, a similar background check to what federal employees get, at least to start, you know, ones that don't handle sensitive information and stuff. So that's that's a big deal. And I think most cops and most interactions I have had and personally have had where concealed carry is at issue when it's communicated and when a permit is presented, especially it's like, it's a non-issue because I think most cops look at that person and go, they're probably not dangerous because they, they're, they're a law abiding citizen or they wouldn't have that document in hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's fair. And it, it, you know, it's always about balance and trying to understand both sides of, of the view and say, Hey, we don't want to jeopardize the safety of our officers and stuff. But uh, yeah, the Constitution, because of the Bill of Rights, you know.
0: Yep, yep. So it's it's you know it's an interesting one, and I, I'm not surprised at all, by the way, to see you know Indiana and Texas and Utah uh, are three very political. You know, West Virginia, of course, being the 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 main one here, uh, leading the charge. Very, very, very conservative states, and uh, Michigan. Yeah, you know. Kind of more middle middle ground there, but uh, I'm not surprised at all to see it coming from, from those states. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if anything results from this request. All right, so turning now to another story. I, I think you probably found this one interesting, Jacob. And this was on campusreform.org. And, you know, we are... Big, big fans here at concealedcarry.com uh, as far as promoting concealed carry on campus. Uh, we think it should be – that should be the law of the land everywhere you go uh, that responsible law, law-abiding citizens and adults, even in, including those that go to school at colleges, should be able to carry concealed now, this story is out of Washington State, where a student is looking at suing Evergreen State College over an off-campus gun ban. Now, this one kind of blew my mind, Jacob. And essentially, what's at issue here? What What he is describing is, I mean, like, makes my eyes want to bleed, because he's basically saying... That Now, state law there prohibits concealed carry on college campuses without permission from the school. Okay. I mean, I, I might not necessarily agree with that from a legislative standpoint, but if that's the law of the state, okay, all right, I get it, all right? But what this student, and his name is Steve Kaufman, what he is saying is that they are restricting his rights to carry concealed even at off-campus events. What? <laughs> what it says?
1: That's crazy, yeah, and, and it is crazy. Uh, and it's 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 deeper than that too, because essentially the school you know put out its own policy that essentially said, okay, you know, we we we're banning firearms on campus, but uh, you know, you, unless you get written permission to carry. So he wrote in asking for permission. And it's great. The article, by the way, you guys should really go look at it because it has all the emails yeah, uh, in here. Yeah, like It's great. Yeah, screenshot. It's, it's, it's great. So he, he said, okay, well, I'll just ask for permission. So he asked for permission and they say no. And and then he reads and says that there's an, a, an option to appeal. So he says, I'd like to appeal. And they say, well, we don't really have a process. And he's like, well, You say I can appeal, you know what's the problem? So they give him an appealing process, and and it it just kind of is this endless back and forth ridiculousness between him and the school, and and it just goes to show. Here's 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 my beef, okay? Like, I'm sorry, if I if I have to do this, I will. But my beef is schools in states like this, unfortunately, I think, have an unfair situation put on them because I don't actually think it's fair that the school has to come up with these policies. I really don't. Because what you have is you have a handful of states, really just like four, maybe three, in fact. I'm, I'm pulling up my map right now because, of course, I have a map for something like this. I think there's only four states that actually constitutionally... Allow that you can have guns on a college campus. There's three: Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. I thought there might be a fourth, mm-hmm. and then you have a handful of states where the 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 state law says, "Oh, you you can have guns on campus, but we're going to let the individual schools." Make some rules, you know, that, that they they can regulate it in a reasonable way, right? Like they can they can say you have to have a, a holster re- retention, or they can say you can't have it in this one building for some reason. They can have some reasonable restrictions, but the school has to allow it, and that would be places like Oregon, Texas, Kansas, Arkansas, you know, Mississippi, Wisconsin. And then you have a large number of states, probably half, including Washington, the state we're talking about right now, where essentially the law says it's up to schools to decide, that schools can make their policies. So any one one given school could be totally all 100% A-OK, and another given school could say no, no guns. And I, th- I think that's not cool, because what that does is it, it puts schools in a position to do something they're not cut out to do, which is make decisions about guns. You know, schools should, should they should have, you know, people in their administration that make decisions about how to educate students, right? How to get them degrees and stuff that I don't understand because I am not an academic, I'm a dropout, blah, blah, blah. But schools should not be put into situations where they have to make gun policy. And this to me is a prime example of what happens when the state government forces schools to write their gun policies, I think that sucks. I think that the fault here is the state of Washington, who put an un, un, you know, un unnecessary and burdensome you know, pr- problem on the hands of school administrators. It's bullcrap. Uh, I, I just I don't think it was done. Now. I mean, it's better than being in New Mexico or Louisiana or Illinois, a state where the, the statute just says no guns. Period. We don't care, but. It's, it's I still think it's not fair to make the schools write this stuff. So, yeah, while I think the school is full of crap and, you know, Mr. Kaufman, you know, keep up the good fight, buddy. I also think that the problem here is that the state of Washington put the school in a position where they have to write gun policy. And that's not what schools do.
0: Yeah. Well, that was exactly my thinking as you, listening to you go, you know, work your way through your logic there. I was thinking you're asking administrators, school administrators that do not understand the thing that they are forced to make policy about. (laughs) And that's a recipe for disaster. So, by the way, the appeal process uh, that they gave uh, Mr. Kaufman, uh, I didn't think was terribly unreasonable when I was reading the article, but when you actually look at the screenshot of the email – it says this. So for his appeal procedure, he had to submit a request for an exemption. Okay, no big deal, right? Provide a copy of a concealed pistol permit. No big deal. Provide a copy of his driver's license. Ah, that's easy enough. And sign a release form for a criminal background check. Yeah, okay, whatever. All right, I could get on board with that. But if you actually, re- if you look at the email screenshot, it says and associated payment. So I suspect. As part of this appeal process, they're making you pay for the uh, background check that they're going to run on (laughs) you. Right, right. Which was already run when you got the permit. That was not mentioned in the the written article portion, but I just saw that in the screenshot of the email communication and I was like, oh, that's lame. Yeah, exactly. Because the the permit itself should almost be like, by the way, here's my background check. (laughs) You know? Oh, man. And they can check on the status
1: and validity of that permit for free anytime. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know why we need another background check. Totally.
0: Totally. So interesting story here. I mean, and by the way, we focused a lot on the issues relating to concealed carry on this campus and, and the campus making rules associated with that. But keep in mind that where this kind of got started was he was trying to attend some, off, some school sanctioned events that took place off campus and and was told that he couldn't carry concealed off campus. Yeah, that's just total crap. That is total crap. Um anyway, all right. Well, we'll we'll move on from that one, but we thought that would be an interesting one to share with you guys today. So, I mentioned in the kind of opening uh, introduction of today's episode about uh, smart guns and whether they are a smart idea, uh, which we did mention and and cover this in episode two of the Concealed Carry Podcast, way back when, almost a year and a half ago now. It's crazy to think. And if you listen to that, what would come out of it, obviously, was that smart guns, bad idea. Really, really, really bad idea. This one, this article is... I think takes that to a to a new level because it uses as its example of a smart gun the Armatix or Armatix or I don't know exactly they pronounce Armitics. it kind of weird in the in the there's a video here you can watch and he said it differently than how I say it but it, this is the Armatix uh, IP1 pistol it's a 22 caliber smart gun you have to have a special wrist watch worn at the same time that you're using it the, the watch i think has to be within about a foot of the gun for the gun to fire And so, all right, that sounds like a smart idea. That means I could just leave my gun wherever, and you know, until I'm holding it in my hand, it can't go bang, right? Well, what this guy, this is a, this guy is a security um, uh, consultant. We'll call him. He's basically a hacker, a professional hacker, and he found out how to hack the Armatix smart gun using fifteen dollars worth of common, easily purchased uh, magnets. Well, it's, 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 it's so much awesomer than, than it sounds
1: to be honest. Like I, you just totally undersold it. (laughs) Uh, he, he, he did so much more than that. Yeah, it's true. What he found is that with $15 in magnets, you know, literally he could stick the magnets against on the side of the gun, kind of on the frame, kind of right above the grip and boom, like good to go. No watch required. Now I can shoot. Um, but he also admitted that that would be a very easy fix um, in terms of the way it was constructed. Now here, here's what I would call the less easy fixes. <laughs> okay. He he also found that he could create a transmitter that would put off a signal They would essentially fake the watch signal so that he could get rid of the watch and take his homemade transmitter and boom, good to go, I can shoot the gun now. Or he could also do the opposite. He could put the watch on, have the gun in hand, and in theory it should fire, but using a homemade transmitter, he could put off a signal that essentially blocks the watch and kills the gun. Yeah, he could jam Jam the signal signal, so it wouldn't. They would think the watch was not present. Um, a, a myriad of things like that he also was able to create a, a, essentially a range, um, extender extender. Yeah. So, so I can leave my watch over here, put a transmitter next to the watch, and then I can go way over here and, and, you know, at, at distance because, you know, I've extended the reach of, of the watch now. So the short of it is like anything about this just became really ridiculous, stupid, and silly.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't remember episode two very well, but, I'm pretty sure we talked about the uh, some a lot of these issues about you know the potential for hacking uh, that technology and that gun and uh, you know there's a lot of other issues too of course I mean with the technology working and batteries going dead on the gun or uh, you know maybe I need, maybe my my shooting hand or whatever gets disabled during a gunfight and now I can't hold my hand with the wristwatch up close to the gun and now I can't defend myself you know there's all these issues. But at the core of it, this is technology incorporated into an analog technology, into a gun, a firearm. And we know pretty much in today's world, anything digital and electronic can pretty much be hacked. And that's what this guy did. He hacked it about four or five different ways. And the simplest one of all was holding some magnets to the side of the gun, and the gun was able to fire without the watch. Meaning, it's a safety issue. If if that's you know the purpose of of having that gun to begin with is because it's supposedly going to be safer for you and your family. Wow. So thank you to his his uh, he wouldn't he went by a pseudonym this this hacker Uh, his his pseudonym is Plore or Plore or something. So Plore, thank you for bringing to our attention the fact that smart guns probably not a good idea. I'll just say that smart guns are stupid. How about that? Yep. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. On to uh, a quick story from freebeacon.com. I'm really not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've got to get into our justified stories. But uh, it says here, this is the Washington Free Beacon saying that from the Department of Justice, gun prosecutions are up nearly 23%, that the Department of Justice announced on Friday that the number of people charged with with illegal possession of a gun was up almost 23% in the second quarter of 2017 compared with the second quarter of 2016. Uh, they're saying that this is that this is a result of increased enforcement of current federal gun laws and is a direct result of President Trump's executive order on crime reduction and Attorney General Sessions' memo on targeting gun crimes. Interesting how we go from President Obama to President Trump and just a simple change of administration and a different approach in policy. And... Now we are seeing a very substantial uh, increase in the the prosecution of gun related crimes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, short
1: answer: It's like Trump. Trump basically said, "Like get out there and start arresting people who have guns illegally."
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, okay. Crack down, uh, we, and crime. we did.
1: Yeah, it probably there's probably a cost associated with this in terms of man hours and pow- manpower. But uh, apparently, we're busting people, and it mentions that the vast majority of these people are felons who you know mm-hmm. cannot legally possess
0: firearms. Yep, exactly. That that's where the DOJ would typically get involved, particularly if it was a federal felony that was involved. Uh, they would most certainly be involved in prosecuting uh, federal felons that were in possession of guns illegally. So, hey, good good for them. I, I have no problem with that. I think that's great. We should keep guns out of the hands of those that shouldn't have them. So, awesome. Let's get now into our first justified story. This is out of Atlanta, Georgia, or at least the Atlanta area. DeKalb, do County? this without laughing. You're not allowed to laugh. Okay, I'm going to go totally straight face. Homeowner shoots, kills burglar dressed like woman good job <laughs> that's a doozy there you go that's a doozy. Uh, uh, th- this is this is quite a story uh so police say a homeowner shot and killed a man dressed like a woman after he broke into uh, or should i say she <laughs> broke into his home that happened in lithonia near brownsmill road just after 2 a.m channel 2's liz arts spoke to the uh, DeKalb County Police Lieutenant Lonzie Robertson about it. And the details he gave was that the homeowner gave this man a warning. The suspect continued to approach him, at which time the homeowner fired one shot. So he says the homeowner will not be charged because it's been ruled as self-defense. Neighbors in the area said that they believe the homeowner did the right thing. Um, the homeowner has a, a house full of, of females, of women, and he doesn't mess around when it comes to their, to their safety. People should protect themselves and their property, this man said. The burglar died at the scene. Uh,
1: people should not protect their property with deadly force, but I don't think, yeah, you know, in, in the context of what he said, that's fine, but I, I just always like to reiterate that we let stuff go.
0: Yep, I agree, and we 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 kind of talked about that in our first story. I was simply quoting from the man, but uh, sure, yeah. So homeowner shoots, kills burglar dressed like woman. I never heard that one before. So there's a first time for everything, right?
1: Yeah, let it let it go. Apparently, yeah.
0: bullets you know have the same effect on a man as they do on a woman, as they do on a man dressed as a woman. <laughs> Imagine that. Now, on to Houston, Texas, where a uh, suspect was arrested in San Antonio after a Harris County jewelry store robbery. And, and it says here, the title says it's a, the final suspect. So, there were, I believe, three suspects in this uh, jewelry store robbery, and they finally caught up with the third one, and he is now placed into uh, custody. So, the story here, though, I mean, this is a pretty intense story, uh, and actually... I don't know when did this originally happened. Uh, where's the date? Does it have a date? I guess it was last Tuesday. So I was thinking, I'm surprised we didn't have this story on last week, but it hadn't quite hit hit our uh, radar screens yet. Uh, so it took them about a week, it looks like, to catch up with this third, th- third suspect. In this story, we have basically a drew- jewelry store owner And he is robbed at about 2.45 p.m. on Tuesday, this last Tuesday. The jewelry store is called Your Jeweler. This was in Harris County. Three men come in. They're armed. And they start pistol whipping the jewelry store owner. At one point during the struggle, this is quoting from Lieutenant Thomas Gilliland with the Harris County Sheriff's Office. They said He said, they began to beat him, pistol whip him. At one point during the struggle, he managed to retrieve a pistol that was inside the store. He exchanged gunfire with the robbers. The 66-year-old owner told investigators he believed he hit at least th- one of the three robbers before they left the store. Investigators followed a trail of blood that led them to where the getaway car was parked at a car wash. One man showed up at a hospital with multiple gunshot wounds. They later found another man discovered dead at a residence west of the robbery scene. And now they finally caught up with the third suspect, who I believe was uninjured. But I'm glad they caught up with him.
1: Yeah, the the major takeaway here to me is really obvious. You know, have the gun on you. This man went through a very gruesome ordeal that who knows how it might have ended up. I mean, he he might have been left dead and bloody, right? We don't know how it would have ended. But he went through an awful ordeal, getting beat and assaulted. (laughs) And debatably, you know, if he'd had the gun on him, it might not have lasted that long. He might have been able to defend himself before it got so bad. So, the number one lesson, have that gun on you. You do not want to be trying to escape a bloody whipping, trying to reach and get to your gun.
0: Yeah, Totally agreed. You got your gun on you right now, Jacob. Yeah, of course. Yeah, same here. What are you carrying today? I'm curious.
1: Glock 43. I'm wearing my tight pants, and I, I'm going to sound like a woman for a minute. That's embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I have a pair of uh, 511s on that I really like, and I don't usually wear them because. They're size 32 waist, and I can only wear size 32 waist if I don't wear a gun. But unfortunately, my other favorite pants are all dirty. Today's laundry day. So I wore this, and that means I, I got to wear the Glock 43. Anything else just won't
0: fit comfortably. Hey, man, I'm not judging you for carrying the Glock forty three. Sure. But I am going no, to judge I'm, you
1: on the tight pants. <laughs> I, I know. Like, I'm just being honest. Uh, Jacob, the
0: guy who has pants that he calls tight pants. <laughs> and uh, I'm carrying my Glock 19. So, you know. You and I are recording this remotely. We're both in our homes. And if anything, I mean, we have learned through the years and from studying a lot of stories like this, just how critical it is to be armed at all times. Yeah, I I, I was once in that group years ago, whereas like I would carry when I left the house and I get home and I take it off and put it in the safe because it was kind of like a, well, I'm home now and it's a comfort issue. But no, no, I've, I've since learned my lesson. Turning now yeah. to our attention to Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and Pottstown police say a father shot his son multiple times following an argument. This is crazy oh, to me dad. because wasn't it just last week we had a couple of stories about you know kind of like family disputes that well, turned we're, deadly? We're like
1: four weeks in a row uh, is the answer. Like last week was the stepdad who shot the stepson because the stepson pulled a gun on him and he accidentally hit the twelve-year-old. And then like the week before that. Um, it was the crazy mentally disturbed son found a gun under his dad's bed and drew it on mm-hmm. the dad. That's and right. And so the dad got shot and ran and got his shotgun and shot him back. And then the week before, like, it's like, we're like four weeks in a row, dads shooting their sons. This, this one is a little different. The dad did not defend himself from a gun, but from a blade. In fact. And that blade was being wielded, uh, apparently pretty well. It says it was a four foot katana. Is that how you say that? You would know, Riley. Katana.
0: Katana, thank you. In fact, so, sorry, I have one. Hopefully, I didn't offend you above the desk on my bookshelf, from from Japan. You would. Yeah. That's legit. That's that's wow. that's from the source. Spend two years there. You know, that's the kind of stuff you end up with. But uh, yeah, this is a this is this is a crazy one. I know I say that a lot, but I mean, here you have a son. Uh, now, first, I'm going to set the stage a little bit because lower down in the story, it says that um, cops have been called to this residence. Uh, several times recently in recent history so it seems clear to me that there was there was a problem going on here you know i'm thinking you know so often we see not to put all the blame on the son uh but you know it's it could very well just be so simple as a son that is doing crap that dad doesn't want the son to do and uh you know son decides to take it take it out on his dad and he chooses the katana but Unfortunately for him, dad's got the gun. You can tell, in fact, my, my heart is just like, oh, you know, it just really cuts to the core of you here. As you're reading this, it says, when the dad was going into the ambulance, I, we heard him say, I'm just trying to see if my son's okay. I shot him twice. And other witnesses said, you know, they saw him crying hysterically and he just kept asking about his son's condition. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you, you know, I just get the sense that he didn't want to do this, but... You know, he's being he's – his son's trying to chop him in half with a katana. He sustained wounds to his hands and arms uh, trying to defend himself against that katana and was able to get to a gun and defend himself.
1: Yeah, my little broken record message here would be, you know, we <laughs> – Uh, My heart goes out to parents who are dealing with, you know, disturbed or struggling, you know, youth. And I don't think it's always the fault of the parents. I really don't. Sometimes it may be, but even if it is, it really doesn't matter. Here's, here's my broken record issue. You need to keep weapons out of the hands of those children. And I know that maybe that sounds overly simplified and it may not be that easy and maybe sometimes just outright impossible. But, you know, does this, this son owned a katana? (laughs) That's probably not okay.
0: Oh, I don't know. I guess it depends on what age the the son is. I mean, if he's a six year old or an eight year old, that's enough. one thing. It doesn't
1: say the you age know. of the son, does it?
0: But I would have uh, no problem with my you know my son, my son. is almost eleven now. I, I'd probably well, I don't know. He's got knives and you know pocket knives, and he's got a little hatchet and things like that. I mean, those could all be, they could be turned into weapons.
1: Yeah, that's not me.
0: But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you and I are different, different uh, in that regard. That's for sure. I'm afraid so. But, uh, yeah, we don't know what the age of the son was. I'm reminded of a uh, cop friend of mine, a number of years ago, as he responded to a domestic uh, issue at a residence. He arrived and the mom said her husband, or not her husband, her son. And he was like, Seven or eight years old, and somehow he had gotten a hold of a sword, uh, like a legit sword, and he was threatening mom with this sword. And uh, the, you know, the cop goes in there, and as he approaches the the bedroom door where the son was hiding in inside the room, there. The door suddenly opens and he comes out, rushing at the cop with this sword. It was a—they described it as like more like a broadsword. So it was a pretty big sword. I'm amazed this kid could even hold it. And uh, the cop re- re- realized, you know, that this you know eight-year-old or whatever is probably not super skilled at using a weapon like that. So he stepped in close, grabbed his hand or grabbed his arms, spun him around, took it from him, and spanked him in the butt. He said. <laughs> Well. You know? So, yeah. yeah uh, anyway, I share that story just because this one just reminded me so much of that. Uh, age would obviously come, you know, and size of this boy would come into play big time. Uh, it seems to me he's probably a little bit bigger than eight. Um, but uh, anyway. Anyway. Uh, Let's turn now to our final justified story. Columbia, South Carolina, was the subject of national attention last week as tragedy struck the funeral of Margaret Livingston in the form of a madman, James Kester, ramming his car into a crowd of the funeral attendees. This story, and this is on our website, concealedcarry.com. You can read it for yourself directly there. Of course, links in the show notes as always, as it is with all of our news stories we're sharing on the podcast today. This story just is bizarre. Do we even have much info information Jacob as far as motives of this guy? Do you know? No, but it seems to have been specific because he did walk up
1: to a crowd of people and ask, "Is this the funeral of so and so?" and only when they confirmed, "Yes, it is," did he begin his attack. Right. So we I don't know I don't know anything about the motive, only that it was not random.
0: Right. Now, people noted that they they found his in, his inquiry to be a little odd because Folks that knew Margaret Livingston uh, that were attending her funeral knew her as Peg or Peggy uh, and and wouldn't necessarily have referred to her as Margaret, Uh, but they didn't think that was, you know, odd enough to obviously be too concerned about. And as soon as he found out that it was, in fact, the funeral of Margaret Livingston, he turned around, went back to his vehicle, his Cadillac, it says... And immediately then started up and ran it into the crowd of people in the process, hitting 12 people from the ages of 11 to 78. So far, there have not been fatalities from this uh, incident and all are expected to make a full recovery. Now, it's mentioned here also in the article that perhaps one one of the reasons there was not uh, fatalities or that there wasn't a second or third attempt with ramming this crowd with the vehicle was because a woman who was there attending the funeral who was carrying concealed, she produced her concealed carry handgun and pointed it at the driver as he was planning on beginning a second run to mow down more people. He then complied with her as far as he he gave it up. So, yeah. I To me, the news story here
1: is not fully that, hey, like, justified shooter, yay, we drew a gun, we stopped an attack. Like, yes, let's celebrate that awesomeness. Super sad that twelve people got hurt. I think the interesting thing here is that the 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 incident got legitimate national news coverage. Like it really was pretty well covered. But in none of the coverage that the media did was there any mention of the fact that <laughs> he he was debatably, arguably stopped by a concealed carrier.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you because I. I remember sitting at my desk working one of you know on the day this happened uh, and seeing the news alert. I get these news alerts on my phone. I I, I love following the news and I like getting these alerts cuz I I kind of like to be one of the first that knows things. And so and you know that cuz I'm always telling him like, "Hey Jacob, I just saw in fact <laughs> we were at lunch earlier today, right? And what did I tell you?" One of our no, our
1: our amigo on Trump's administration just got fired after ten days on the job. The guy we talked about last week, Scaramucci, Scaramucci? Or whatever his name was,
0: or Scaramucci. Yeah. yeah, we you know last week's episode was kind of fun because you know we kind of we teased it a little bit. Obviously, I mean, we titled it you know as is, is President Trump secretly pro gun control, you know, because we he, he had this new communications director Scaramucci who is is it's very clear that in the past he has made anti-gun statements and now 10 days into the job he's gone you know just like that i mean he he caused quite a ruckus and quite a storm over there in the white house uh and and was very short lived as the uh director there of uh of uh, communications for the white house for president trump but uh you it's so typical of mainstream media where we see Stories like this, and it's so focused on, well, there was this terrible thing that happened. And if a gun was used in a positive way, it's so rare that we see that reported. I mean, there was zero mention of this. Um, I am looking at, uh, here's a, here's one article it says five fast facts. You need to know about this James Kester, who, uh, is the man accused of driving into this crowd. And it talks about the victims range from children to the elderly. Police believe the victims were strangers to Kester's. So they, they had no relation to him. Uh, he appeared emotionless at a bond hearing. And if you look at a picture of him, he looks like a total fruitcake, um, that police think the motive. Now here, here you go. This is the first I've seen this. Was a grudge against the Department of Mental Health. That's weird. So let's just go plow through a group of random people at a funeral. To I don't, I don't know about that. And then the fifth thing that you gotta know. By the way, this is the five things you gotta know about this man and about this this situation. And he's accused of briefly talking to a person at the service before plowing into the victims. Not that one of those things that you really ought to know was that he was prevented from doing further harm by a person that presented their concealed carry firearm to stop him. Yep. yep that's pretty biased media. Absolutely it is. It's bullcrap. That's why you re- we report it here at concealedcarry.com, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, we're biased completely the other way, but you know. granted. Granted. <laughs> Anyway, that is a uh, eye-opening story because, you know, we, we, we focused on a couple elements of that story, but here's the other thing that's in my on my mind, Jacob. It is that I, I remember attending a funeral once, okay, and I almost felt guilty a little bit, you know, because I was going to the church and this was a funeral and you're there to, you know, honor this person, you know, and... I was carrying concealed. And I remember kind of like the thought crossed my mind at one point. And this is years ago, by the way. All right. My, my opinions have changed a great deal since, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, but I kind of felt guilty a little bit. I'm like, Oh, I don't know that I need to have my gun here. You know? And I, that's not how I would feel now about it necessarily. But this story illustrates for me very personally on a personal level that you can be attacked anywhere, anytime as, especially when you least expect it. Would you expect this sort of thing to happen at a funeral? Probably not. But there was a story not too long ago either too, where there was a couple of families at a funeral and they got like into a little scuffle between disgruntled family members. And I think there was a little bit of a shootout or something. But but this is, you know, it's it's another one of those stories that we share all the time. And we use it as an example, Jacob, to really illustrate to people that you've got to be prepared and, Everywhere you go and throughout every minute of the day.
1: Yep. Anytime, anywhere, nothing is safe, nothing is sacred.
0: Yeah, I guarantee you, none of these people expected this to ha- happen. But there was at least one of them that was prepared in that she she did not use it as an excuse, well, this is a funeral or this is a church. You know, She showed up with her gun in tow. And mind you, in South Carolina, where it was not too long ago, we had that... Uh, that shooting at that South Carolina church in uh, Charleston, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, mind you, it's illegal Yeah, in South Carolina yeah. to have a gun Absolutely. at the church. I
0: don't know if this was actually a church or if it was a funeral home. That might be the difference, right?
1: Yeah, that, that could be. Or, you know, hopefully either way it works out in her favor. <laughs>
0: if it was a church, she, you know, she might have gotten away we with We kind of chuckle about it. But, you know, truly we are thankful for people like her and people like you your listeners that are willing to do the same thing. Okay, and you know situations where it's called for. So that's the stories for today. Today's episode is brought to you by VTAC Viking Tactics, is a leader in quality fighting gear that really works. Designed by Special Forces veteran retired Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb, a great deal of thought and design goes into every piece, taking into account lessons learned and experience gained. One can only achieve by fighting on the front lines and behind enemy lines of America's finest soldiers. Whether you need slings, weapon light mounts, belts, or training DVDs, check out VTAC's lineup of gear on concealedcarry.com. And here's a link, concealedcarry.com forward slash brand forward slash viking dash tactics. Check out the link in the show notes if you need, need to refer to it. And today's episode is brought to you also by Live Fire Drill Cards. These revolutionary training aids from Burnett are the slickest drill cards we've ever seen, which is why we partnered with the creator to bring them to you. These cards will walk you through dozens of fundamental shooting drills that will help you shoot better, faster. These cards list all the requirements to shoot each drill, detail parameters, and give you multiple fields to record multiple runs through the drill so you can track your progress. I can promise you will see measurable improvement towards becoming a better shooter over time. Check it out on concealedcarry.com using the link in the show notes. Life, uh, in the show notes and it's uh, labeled live fire drill cards you'll see it there in the show notes when you check it out go there try out a couple of those uh, live fire drill cards I think you'll be impressed with what you find and so there you go that wraps up for another episode today on the Concealed Carry Podcast so Jacob yeah, be vigilant don't let your
1: guard down you know if you are in any way becoming complacent it's time to wake up and
0: recommit and do it right Indeed. And so with that, this is Riley with the Concealed Carry Podcast signing off. I hope that you will train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week or Wednesday.